Well, good morning, fam. It's good to see you. Great to see uh, so many of you here and to see lots of um, dear old friends uh, and college students and the rest back. It's awesome to see um, all of us here together. We have been uh, in this season of Advent in the series that we're called Waiting for the King. So those of you who haven't been here, let me just kind of do a quick recap. What we've done the last three weeks, we've been looking at passages from the book of Matthew, and we've looked at three waiting stories, three stories that Jesus tells about what does it mean to be people who are waiting, specifically waiting for his coming again, his coming again to renew all things. We've looked at what does it mean for us to wait. Well, today, since we're getting real close to Christmas, we're going to jump right back into the beginning of Matthew, and now for the next few weeks, look at the first three chapters of Matthew and look at what it meant for the people, the ancient people, to wait and then receive the coming Messiah and how good and joyous of an experience that was. So if you'll join me in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start right in the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you'll open your Bibles there or to page 7 in the worship guide, and you'll find this very gripping passage, the uh, genealogy that uh, begins this book. So hold on tight, bear with me. Um, If you get bored, just try to, I don't know, count how many mistakes I make as I read these names. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. So David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, bad dude right there, Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Mm Mm-hmm. After the exile to Babylon, friends, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihad. Abihad, the father of Elakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihad. Elihad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called Christ, Messiah. So there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This, oh, people of God, even this is the word of the Lord. Everybody knows the best thing about Christmas is the surprises, right? The surprises. You you know, you're hearing from an old friend that you weren't expecting to hear from, uh, having a family member show up that you weren't expecting to see, getting a gift that you were not expecting, all of the best gifts are surprises. This often come in ways or through packages that seem very ordinary. One of the best gifts I ever received came in such a way, I was, uh, actually it was at a third staff Christmas party several years ago. Uh, We were having one of those white elephant gift exchanges and it was my turn to choose. And I looked and there were all these wonderfully, beautifully wrapped presents under the tree in the lobby and 
uh, I decided that I would go for one that looked quite ordinary. It was just wrapped in a brown paper uh, Kroger bag. And so I decided to go for that one. So I picked it up, I opened it, and inside was the most beautiful, battery-powered, multicolored, twinkling light Christmas toilet seat cover <laughs> you've ever seen. It was the best gift, and who, who would have thought that such an amazing gift would come in such an ordinary <laughs> package? What I want to suggest to you, friends, is that this li- I just read you a really long, it seems like a really long, boring list. Some of you tuned out about two-thirds of the way through. But what I want to suggest to you is that though it seems, this list seems really boring and dull, as boring as an old paper bag, there are just some remarkable gifts inside of it. Some remarkable gifts, some beautiful, truly, literally, reality-changing gifts. That if you can really dig into this, this most remarkable piece of scripture, then you will find unmistakable and unbreakable joy. So let, let's just unwrap it a little bit. Let's, let's find what some of the surprises are in this funny little list. Surprise number one, I think, is the genealogy itself. I mean, Mark starts out his story with a gripping tale of Jesus. Luke begins with a sentimental story about the nativity. John begins with a poetic, philosophical meditation. Matthew begins with a list. And it seems weird because, you know, everybody knows, every storyteller knows that the most important thing about the story is the very beginning because that's what keeps people turning the page, right? Uh, Some first lines and beginnings of stories are very famous because they're so well-known and so good. For instance, here's a little quiz. See if you can recognize these. Uh, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. What is it? Tale of Two City, Dickens, right? How about this? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Oh my goodness, come on, y'all. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Um, How about this one? Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four Privet Drive are proud to say they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Yes, Sorcerer's Stone, well done. Now, okay, what wonderful first lines, right? That grip you, pull you in, want you to keep reading. Now compare that to this one. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah. <laughs> Gripping, isn't it? You know, really pulls you in there. <laughs> uh, and remember, this is not just the beginning of the book of Matthew. This is the beginning of the whole New Testament, right? So what is Matthew thinking? Why would he begin the text in this way? Well, remember, I loved hearing Nan preach last week, and I love what she always reminds us of. The Bible was not written for you. It's for you, but it wasn't written for you. It originally was written to ancient people 2,000 years ago, and so we've got to put ourselves in the minds of an ancient reader and understand what was being communicated when they read this. A family tree, a genealogy back then, was almost like a modern version of a resume, right? Nowadays, you're applying for a job, you fill out a resume, You want to present yourself well. You want to show what your experience is, what your networks are. A resume kind of demonstrates to your future employer what kind of person they might expect if they hire you. Back then, a genealogy worked in a very similar way. It told you about a person. It told you about their background, their networks, and let you know what kind of person you should expect. And so when we hear this list, it sounds really boring to us modern people. But back then, 2,000 years ago, if an ancient Jewish person would have heard this, it would have been gripping for them. Like they would have been sitting at the edge of their seat. They would have heard these names like Abraham and David and Judah. And there would be this growing sense of anticipation as the list was read about who would be coming 
at the end. It's kind of like, did any of you watch um, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on TV? Or, or maybe you went to the Richmond, our little great dinky little Richmond Parade and down uh, East Broad Street, which is actually an awesome parade. But, you know, you're watching each float go by. You're watching each, uh, you know, dancing group go by, each band go by. And what's, what are you wait? What's everybody waiting for? What, who is, who's coming at the very end? Santa, right? That's, that's who you're waiting for. And in the same way, this list is like this long parade of people, but it doesn't just go down a street. It goes down history, 40 generations, thousands of years. And at the very end of the list, people are waiting for the Messiah. And Matthew is trying to tell us this is not the beginning of a new story. This is the continuation of a story that began a very long time ago. It's the fulfillment of a promise that God made many generations previously. It's the story about how God made the world good and just, a world of shalom and rightness. It's a story about how that world fell into ruin when human beings rejected God as king. It's a story about how God made a promise to his people that he would not let the world fall to ruin, that he would raise up a Messiah, a hero, a savior, who would come and set things right. That's the story that Matthew is reminding us of with this genealogy. And he's giving little clues Like in verse one, when he says, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and son of Abraham, he wants you to remember the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, when he said, out of you will come a descendant that will bless the nations. He wants you to remember the promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that he will raise up a king from David's line that will establish God's throne forever. And y'all, it's been a long time since God had made those promises A whole lot of years have passed. A whole lot of judgment has happened. A whole lot of terrible things have occurred. God's people have been brought into exile, Babylonian captivity. God has not literally spoken to a single person in Israel for 300 years. It seems silent. God seems missing. And yet, Matthew was saying, he's here. The one that we've been waiting for, the one that all of history has been longing for, God has kept his promise. He's finally here. What does this teach us, family? It teaches us that just like the ancient people, we are people who are waiting. And we can trust in God's promises to be certain just as they trusted and ultimately found God's promises to be true. God never forgets his promises. I I tell you, God can at times feel very, very slow. And it sometimes seems like he is just not even there. He's checked out. But what this teaches us is that we cannot judge God on our timetables. We cannot use our own agendas and measurements of time to judge God's reliability. God may seem to be working very slowly. He may at times seem to have completely forgotten. But what this genealogy shows us is that God keeps his promises, period. Period. And a lot of you need to hear that. You know, I've been talking to some of you over the last few weeks and what I hear is that, um, you know, Christmas is a, is, is, it's a mixed bag. It's, it's, it's a happy time, but it can also be a super painful time. And it can remind you of your pain. It can remind you of how broken your life is and how messed up your family is and how estranged you are from some really dear friends that you used to be pretty close to. And, it can, and, and Christmas, because of the nature of it, it can actually intensify your pain because then it can remind you how far your life is from the life you actually want. 
And it can even leave you feeling sometimes in sort of a fresh way. Like, what happened to the promises of God? Like, what happened to God's promise to heal and to provide and to take care of his people and to give us the desires of our heart? What happened? And I want you to hear, that's what this genealogy shows us, friends, is that you may be in deep darkness. You might find yourself right now in sort of like your own exile, your own little Babylonian captivity, a time of loneliness and uncertainty and confusion, but I want you to hear God is faithful. He keeps his promises. Like James Baldwin says, he never comes when you want him to, but he always comes on time. He always comes on time. And so right now, you may not see it, but right now, I promise you, he is bringing to bear in your life all of his good and gracious promises that he has guaranteed for you in Jesus. Believe it. It's the first amazing surprise, the genealogy itself. Second, though, is the people in the genealogy. The people who are included in the genealogy would have been such an enormous surprise that it would have made any early Jewish listener sit up straight in their chair. First of all, the most notable surprise from the very start would have been the presence of women in this genealogy. Five women are named, if you include Mary at the very end. Six, uh, uh, four women are included in the first six verses. Look with me, Tamar, verse three, Rahab, verse five, Ruth, verse five, and then Bathsheba, who is called Uriah's wife, in verse six. Now, you guys probably didn't notice that very much because we're modern people and you know we group men and women together in family trees, but back then, here's why this is remarkable. People never included women in family trees. I, I, I'm sorry to tell you that, women, but 2,000 years ago, women had very little status. Um, they had very, very little nobility. Um, they were never included in family trees because, frankly, women were not considered to be notable enough to present anything important about the person for whom the genealogy is named. Uh, women were not even considered to be worthy witnesses in the court of law. That's how sort of unjust of a society it was at the time. And so the fact that Matthew went out of his way to include women, five women in this genealogy is remarkable in itself. And then to amplify the scandal, not a single one of the women he named besides Mary, hear me, not a single one is Jewish. Uh, Tamar was a Canaanite, Rahab a Jerichite, Ruth a Moabite, and Bathsheba a Hittite. So let me get this straight. To really be fully included in mainstream society as a worthwhile person back then, you had to be the right gender, Jewish, and the right race, I mean, the, the right gender, a man, and the right race, Jewish. And so Matthew goes out of his way to include four women in the genealogy of Messiah, none of whom were Jewish. And it's clear, he is doing this on purpose, right? I mean, he didn't have to include the mothers in here. He could have included Sarah or Rebecca or some, you know, a, a Jewish wife of more noble uh, reputation. And instead, it's almost like he carefully scoured through the Old Testament to pull out all of the most scandalous figures that he could find to include them in this family tree. What's he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's just shouting through this list. This Messiah has come for everyone, not just for men, and not just for Jews, not just for people with the right background or pedigree. This Messiah is not for special people or for the people who have power or the people who run things. This Messiah is for everyone, no matter your race or your gender or your class or your culture, or your education, whether you're a woman or a man. He's saying the society that you live in might exclude you. The people around you might tell you that you're good not good enough, but this Messiah is for you. 
He's come for you broken and beat down. He's come for you abused and excluded. He's come for you put out and marginalized. He's come for you. He wants to include you in his family tree. This is amazing, friends. And Jesus was that kind of person. If you, walk, if you read the gospels and see what kind of man he was as he grew up and became an adult, he always has this special concern for people who are forgotten and excluded. He's always wanting to bring in people who've been used up and beat down and cast out and excluded. His concern is so strong for people like this <laughs> that Jesus includes them in his family tree. I love what uh, Ray Backey says. He says, the first three chapters of Matthew show us that Jesus himself was an Asian-born baby of mixed-race descent who in the first year of his life became an African refugee. Have you thought about your Jesus that way? He's not like that little golden Jesus in the felt boards in Sunday school class, right? He is our Messiah. And if you believe in that kind of refugee, mixed-race Jesus, then you will be the kind of the person who always, always is wanting to love and include and find those on the outside, those excluded, and you will be wanting to bring them into the family. You know, another big surprise is what the people are like who are in this list. I mean, so my, my dad is, uh, is awesome. I love my dad. And he's really into, he's retired, and so he's got a little extra time. And so he's, he's really into genealogies right now. And he's putting together, like, the Widmer family tree. And he's always sending me texts and stuff and saying, like, hey, look at this guy. He did this, and this guy. Did. My great-grandfather won the gold medal in pole vaulting in the 1908 Olympic Games. Isn't that awesome? Right? And he, like, puts that in the, he, like, highlights that in the family tree. And it's pretty sweet. But you know what? We like to show those kind of people in our family tree. But, you know, we, I don't really want to highlight, like, my, uh, my ancestor who drove the American Indians out of their land. I don't want to really highlight my relatives, many of whom are addicts and alcoholics, and some of whom have committed suicide, and some of whom are in prison as we speak. You know, we don't want to do, just like in your resume, you know, you want to present the nice parts of you. You don't want to include the parts that include when you flunked out of college and, uh, and, and you worked at McDonald's for two years. Like, you don't include that in your resume. Why? Because we want to present the best parts of who we are, which makes it remarkable that here in Matthew's genealogy, he includes many people in Jesus's family tree who are pretty notorious and scandalous sinners. Jacob was a liar and a swindler. Judah was a womanizer and a murderer. Tamar seduced her own husband-in-law, I mean, her own father-in-law into bed. Rahab was a prostitute. Rehoboam, Abijah, Ahaz, some of the most cruel and violent kings in Israel's history. And you know what? Even some of the great ones in the list, like David. Oh, wonderful David, right? Guess what? Matthew goes out of his way to say, oh yeah, and guess who was his wife? Uriah's wife. Why does he call her that? Why doesn't he do Bathsheba? Because he wants to remind us. David, yeah, he was a great king after God's own heart, but he was also a scoundrel who committed adultery and murdered his best friends to get his wife. See, sometimes we think of the Bible like it's a book of full of inspirational people who give us good examples to follow. I've got four kids, so I've got a big, long bookshelf of children's Bibles. And, uh, and um, you, you see all these nice stories about these nice people in the Bible who do great heroic things. But guess what? I looked through them last night, and I didn't see a single one that had Tamar, who seduced her father-in-law. And I didn't, see, I didn't uh, see a single one that had Rahab, the prostitute. And I didn't see any that had Ahaz. And a lot of them had David, but guess what? They said nothing about his lurid affair and the way he murdered his best friend. Mm -mm, didn't see that. <laughs> guess what? And I want kids that are here, I want you to hear me on this. The Bible 
is not mainly full of good people giving us good moral examples to follow so you can get your act together and be a good boy and girl and God will bless you. No. This genealogy shows us that the gospel is this. The Bible is not a collection of stories about good people doing good things. It is a story, it is one big story about bad and broken people being rescued by a good and gracious God. That's the story. It's not mainly, the Bible's not mainly about you and what you should do. It's about God and what God has done. It's not about how to live a good life so God can bless you. It's about how God breaks into your life and breaks into your world to free and liberate and rescue broken sinners like the people are, who are on this list. And that includes everybody. People like my, my, my friend, Pastor Don likes to say, people who are in the guttermost and people who are in the uttermost. It means the prostitutes and the kings, all of them, all equally sinners before Jesus, all equally in need of grace. That's what this genealogy shows us. Jesus is the Messiah who has skeletons in his closet and he loves to pull them out and show them in his family tree. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, Hebrews 2. He is not ashamed to put us in his family tree. John 1, 12, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. He makes us part of his family. And that's what Christmas is about. The good news of rescue that the Messiah has been born to save bad, broken, needy, messed up people, that Jesus is making a new family through his grace where king and prostitute, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women, all of us can gather together and part of the family of God in and through the rich grace of Jesus for us. If you think that Christmas is anything about good cheer and, and eggnog, please just get it out of your head. It's about good news of grace. So that's the surprise number two. One last surprise, though. The final gift of the genealogy is in verse 17. I love this. I don't like math, but I do love this. Matthew says this very interesting fact. He says 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from uh, David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. Three sets of 14, guys. Six sets of seven. So, so like, again, like, we're modern people. We're like, and so? But a Jewish person reading this would be like, oh my goodness, because this, the Bible is full of sevens, right? Patterns of seven are a really big deal in the Bible. God created the world in six days and rest on the seventh. God calls his people to work for six days and rest on the seventh. There's something called the year of the Jubilee in the Old Testament. Leviticus 25 says, listen, every seventh set of seven years is a Jubilee year. And that's the year where all debts are forgiven, all slaves are freed, and the land is at rest. So in other words, seven means rest, seven means restoration, seven means renewal. And so here Matthew says, after three sets of 14 and six sets of seven, now has come the time of the seventh seven, friends, all sevens point to this. This person, this Messiah, Jesus, has brought the Jubilee. He's brought the eternal Sabbath. He's brought the, 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 the everlasting rest. He's brought liberation and renewal for all people in all creation. That's the gift that this Messiah has come to bring. Ultimate, deep, everlasting rest and shalom, flourishing for God's people and for all things. What an amazing gift. You know, St. Augustine began 
his autobiography with that now famous line, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And yet we don't believe it. I mean, I know I don't. I just keep on thinking that I can find some other small M Messiah that will actually make my soul less restless. That we all just keep looking and seeking and going after stuff that we think that will finally set our hearts right. And our culture lies to us and tells us that it's possible, that all you need is the right body and the right career and to live in the right city and the right neighborhood and have the right kind of family and have the right friends and go on the right vacations and have the right Instagram feed that everybody can admire and have the right soulmates. And then if you get all this stuff, you actually can live in this veil of tears with a deeply fulfilled soul. It's a lie. Henry Nouwen, one of my favorite writers, knew it. He said, aren't you like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being that you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, relationship, fulfill my deepest desires? But listen, as long as you're waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious, restless, always lustful, angry, never fully satisfied. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. So see, it's amazing because here we are, anxious, modern, depressed, fearful, terrified, restless, unsatisfied 21st century Americans. And here's this old, ancient, dusty list saying, here's where you can get it. Here's where you get the rest. Here's where all your deepest longings are satisfied. Here's the person where you're, you, you can finally put to bed your lusts, your desires, your anxious longings. Find your rest in him. This is the one you've been waiting for. He's come to give you rest to your souls. So friends, this is just the greatest gift. I mean, it's just amazing. This ancient, silly old list full of just such astonishing surprises. It's the surprise of the, of the list itself that Matthew begins this gripping story uh, with this long list to remind us that he's the fulfillment of a promise in history. There's the surprise of the people in the list, reminding us that Jesus has come not to teach us how to be good, but to save bad and broken people and to make us part of his family. And it's the surprise of the rest itself, that Jesus has come to give us what we're all restlessly after, the rest of soul that we crave. So this genealogy, as weird as it first appears, contains all of these remarkable surprises to give us the hope, life, and rest that we ultimately crave. So look, it may look as boring uh, as, a, as a brown paper bag, but I just want to invite you to open it and find inside the deepest longings of your heart fulfilled, uh, to find the Savior who's come to love you and give his life for you, um, the one who, who wants to set you free. Would you receive him with me today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're just so grateful to you uh, that you, you are the great king and yet uh, you came in the most ordinary uh, paper bag way, born to a teen mom in a stable in a podunk town. And yet in that paper bag is literally the life of the world. And we're just so grateful. And I pray that if there are any here who, who do find themselves sad and lonely, afraid, uh, discouraged, uh, who, 
who are just restlessly searching for truth but have not found it yet, I pray that they would receive this gift of Jesus and find their souls rested in him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.